Hi everyone, you're listening to the Health and Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Alison Mitchell of Practicing Naturopath and you can find me on naturopathnsw.com.au. Today, I have with me my fellow naturopath, Hayley Stockbridge. We're talking about all things digestion and answering some questions. These podcasts will feature discussions on various health conditions, health tips and nutrition from a naturopathic perspective. Sometimes it's just me and sometimes I'm interviewing guests. All the time, I hope to share with you information on health and well-being with the aim to empower and educate. Please remember that all information is general and not a specific recommendation that replaces consulting with a practitioner. Please talk to your healthcare practitioner before undertaking any changes to your treatment regime. Hayley, thanks for joining me today. I'm super excited to have you here and we're going to be talking about digestive health. This is something that you're pretty interested in, aren't you? Yes. So digestive health is probably one of the most common things that I see in my clinic Um, and it's also one of the things that I like to treat the most. Yeah, nice. It's really quite satisfying to treat, I find, because you can get a lot of symptom relief. That's exactly right and I think it's also (laughs) just one of the most common symptoms that people suffer from, IBS, things like reflux and heartburn and bowel issues, all the way through to things like Crohn's disease and things that medically speaking aren't always very well treated when actually there's this huge realm of ways that we can manage the symptoms through diet, through herbs, through nutrition, to the point where the patient's pretty much symptom-free. So I feel mainly passionate that there's this whole realm of treatment that people should explore that they have no idea even exists until they come to see a naturopath. Yeah, exactly right. Like that's what I see as well. Like they just don't know how much we can do or how much they can they can do alone. Like you often see people who have had um, a condition diagnosed and they just get medication but no diet advice or any other sorts of guidelines on what to do about it. So it's just something that they feel like they're stuck with forever. That's but, right. And you'd probably, I'm sure you would agree with this as well, is that how important the digestion is to your overall health? Yes, that's right. So the digestive system has a huge role to play in how our brain functions, our mood, our energy levels, most importantly, how our immune system is working, how toxic we are, how our liver works. So essentially, if you've got issues in your digestive system, then you're likely to develop symptoms and issues in other areas of your body. So we always naturopathically like to start with treating the digestive system first. Yeah, definitely. So can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yep. So uh, my name is Hayley Stockbridge and I work from two clinics in Sydney. One is in Stanmore in the inner west. One is in Manly in the northern beaches. And I see lots of different things in clinic. I do lots of digestive health. I treat lots of hormone health, things like headaches, lots of food intolerances, lots of kids' health. Lots of things, um, but the main thing that I like to treat is digestion just because I feel like we get such good results with that. Um, Yeah, so I've been in practice now for just over seven years. Yeah, I just got my LinkedIn work anniversary reminder that was seven years as well. (laughs) Oh, goodness, it's a bit scary. Actually, I feel like it's, yeah, it's good to get to seven years. (laughs) Stoked. But it still just seems like yesterday we were at uni does doesn't seem like that long ago at all Uh okay cool so um i thought it would be really good to start with what is a normal bowel movement 
Okay, good question. So as naturopaths, we love to talk about poo. Yes, we do. <laughs> and embarrass our patients. Um, and sometimes and we get so used to it that we talk about it at dinner parties and all sorts of that's things like it. that. Yeah. <laughs> and I often find myself diving into the, the poo questions when a patient's kind of just sat down and I have to remind myself that it's not something that they're probably used to talking about and maybe I need to lead into that. Yeah, we like to need a disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I guess the thing is that bowel movements can tell you lots about your health and lots about what's going on in your digestive system. So everyone kind of will probably have their own sort of patterns that they have for their bowel movements. However, I would say that a normal bowel movement ideally or a healthy bowel movement should be um, ideally that you're going each morning very close to waking up. Once a day would be ideal. If you're going once every two days and you feel completely comfortable and no symptoms, then I feel like that's okay if, if that's your level of normal. But absolutely, it should be formed. If you want to liken it to a shape of something like a sausage or a banana is what we're after. Um, it should be... A banana. <laughs> <laughs> so a banana in that it's going to somewhat take the shape of your small of your large intestines. Yep. So there should be a little bend in it. We want it to like, completely sink. It should not float. Floating can be a sign of poorly digested fats. Yeah. There should be a little bit of smell but mild only. It shouldn't be too offensive. What about if you're a vegetarian? Is it okay to float then? Potentially, if you've got a really, really high fiber diet, you might see some floating. Mm. And usually, if that's the case, you might be going a bit more often as well. But if it's formed each time, that's pretty normal as well. Absolutely. I guess um, if someone's got a really high vegetable and diet, generally, they'll probably go maybe once or twice in a day, which is fine as long as they're comfortable with that. Yeah. I think something to add as well is that you should feel like you've gone, like you should get that sense of relief. Yes, I always explain it to my patients as, does it feel complete? Yeah. <laughs> as in, does it feel like, ah, oh, it's completely empty, I'm good now, I'm good to go, as opposed to, oh, I've gone a little bit, but I feel like there's more, but I can't pass anything at the moment. Because some people can have constipation whereby they're still having a bowel movement every day, it's just that they're not completely emptying their bowels. So that's a good one to bring up. Yeah, or they might have to be going a few times in the morning to actually feel like it's working. Or like it's getting out. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Oh, no, that's good. So I've got a few questions that people have submitted. So um, I thought we okay, could cool. start, start with that. Um, Great. All right. So I'm just going to read them out. All right. So here's the question. I've had GORD, which is gastroesophageal reflux disease, ever since I can remember. I'm on Nexium and I take Metamucil. I still get the occasional bit of reflux, but mostly it's controlled with medication. I don't want to stay on it because I don't want to rely on a medication. I also get diarrhea every week or so that's watery, explosive and smelly and really urgent and uncomfortable and I'm frequently bloated. Is any of this connected and what do you suggest I do about it? What do you think, Hayley? Okay, so if I had a patient come in with all of these symptoms, the first thing I'd suggest is that even though they're saying the Nexium and the Metamucil is controlling their symptoms, that it's most probably not. They've still got a lot going on. To have the occasional reflux, even with the medications, is not ideal. And we're not supposed to have diarrhea once a week. That's so watery and explosive. And the bloating is an issue as well. 
Um, so there's lots of avenues to kind of explore here to make sure that their digestive system is working well. Um, I'd actually be thinking along the lines of some sort of bacterial situation, some sort of bacterial overgrowth perhaps that might be causing the fermentation, therefore the bloating and also the diarrhea. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree too. Like you could be looking at something like a helicobacter, although that was that's usually ruled out with the doctor when there is that diagnosis of reflux but maybe something a little bit further down like SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because that can often cause the diarrhea as well and you Mm. can get the fermentation from that causing the backlog pressure yes absolutely and I just always like to mention to people that medications like Nexium they're suppressing your stomach acid release so I mean it's highly likely that if you're taking something like that long term that you're going to get symptoms lower down the digestive system because we really need our stomach acids to break down our proteins and to make sure that we don't have bacterial building up, etc. So, I mean, anything that we can do to support that digestive system without necessarily needing to rely on the medication would be amazing. Um, I think also it's quite important to look into diet um, and it's hard to know. Obviously, we don't know how this person eats, but there's so many different triggers for reflux that we can go through. I often investigate things like food intolerances, which I find gives patients a little bit more of control over their symptoms so that they can work on what they're eating rather than having to take medication to get it under control. But in saying that, I would also never suggest coming off your medication um, until you've got the rest of the, the symptoms sorted. Yeah, definitely. And just touching on that point as well, like you um, should always be aware that if you come off Nexium or any of those proton pump inhibitors really quickly, then you can get a rebound stomach acid um, production, which means that your symptoms can be really, really crazy for a little while. And this isn't something that everyone knows about because I don't think it's really talked about that Mm. often. but. Mm. It's it's a kind of makes you feel like you're addicted, like you depend on the medication when that happens and you don't know that that's just something that happens naturally. So you should be working with your doctor to ease off it really gradually. Yes. I just want to say as well that Nexium and those other sorts of medications were never designed for long-term use. They were only ever designed to be used at most like three months at a time. And you do see people going on it long-term. You see adults and you even see babies being put on it long-term. And... Like you said, it causes all these nutritional deficiencies and like stops you breaking down your protein, but it also stops you from being able to deal with the bacteria in your gut as well because yes. you need your stomach acid and your enzymes to kill your bacteria. So that's why you can get this develop, development of the diarrhea because it's like your SIBO um, can just sort of come about as a result of being on the Nexium. Yeah, exactly. It kind of creates its whole host of other digestive symptoms. and problems if you're doing it long term yeah so i think it's good sorry i think it's important to mention as well that for some people the the reflux is a structural issue so you know if the top of their stomach isn't closing off properly between meals or if they're lying flat and they're having stuff going back up into their throat um they're usually told then that you need to take these uh, kinds of medications for life because you've got a hiatus hernia or whatever that means you're always going to get reflux but actually you can use a whole bunch of different types of herbal medicines and nutrients um, to still work on the reflux and still make sure that it you're not getting any damage in the esophagus and that the the top of the stomach is closing off properly so that the muscle tone in the stomach is a little better to kind of keep everything in the stomach and pushing through well 
Yeah, and the, the esophageal sphincter, the pyloric sphincter, all of that can be a factor. And they get told mm. that they have like a lazy lazy sphincter or a loose valve, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's, yeah. It's common, yeah. That term's used a lot. Exactly. And so those people are usually just told, well, medication for life, there's not much more that you can do about it, but there yep. is quite a lot else you can do. Yeah, there's a lot of fear associated with it because of the Barrett's esophagitis. Yes. Which, which like, don't totally agree that is something that you don't want to just ignore because that's when your cells in your esophagus can become cancerous and actually they develop more of a lining similar to the stomach and the intestines rather than the esophagus. And so they've got more of a propensity to developing into cancer cells. Yeah, so it's a, it's a real fear. I guess it's just looking at great ways in which you can try and control the symptoms a little more naturally with less side effects lower down the digestive system like this person has. Yeah, so obviously something really going on there. So we'd probably think, I'd be thinking maybe do some breath tests, like looking at like SIBO or FODMAPs or Helicobacter to see what's happening there. And then also looking at doing maybe some food elimination um, like you're saying, food intolerance could be a part of it as well. Um, so most commonly it's wheat or dairy or eggs along those lines and then using some herbs to soothe the gut to get the motility working properly and to deal with any sort of bacterial issue that might be there. Absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, I'd almost put this patient on like an 8 to 12-week whole digestive program mm. to get yeah. everything working again. Yeah, definitely. And then for food, apart from the food sensitivities, you've got your typical yeah. stuff that can cause reflux as well, like your spicy stuff and your citrus and your peppermint. And I think that's a bit different Chocolate for everyone. And yeah, coffee and fatty foods, I feel, tend to make a huge difference. Yes. Yeah, so I feel like what, how I explain it to patients is it's not necessarily those foods are the problem that's giving them the reflux, but they're just going to make them more symptomatic and make them feel a whole lot worse. So it's easier just to stay away from some of those. Yeah, that's good. All right, do you want to move on to the next question? Sure. Yeah. Okay. What was it? Um, I feel... It says, I feel bloated and grumpy whenever I eat bread, but my GP says I'm not celiac, so I can eat as much bread as I want. I don't get it, though. Why am I getting these feelings if I'm okay with bread? Great question. This is one of my most irritating things that <laughs> yes. I see in clinic, whereby patients are screened for celiac disease, which is what I would call like the top of the, the end scale gluten intolerance where these people genetically for their entire lives have a condition that means they will never be able to break down gluten effectively. Um, and yes, some people do have that issue. Most people are tested and it comes back negative. So they're told, no problems, you can have gluten, wheat's fine for you, it's no issue. But actually there's all other types of levels of gluten intolerance that people can suffer from, mild through to moderate, etc., that won't necessarily be picked up on that standard medical testing. I mean, I guess my first point to this person would be that if they know that they're eating bread and it makes them feel bloated and grumpy, then yes, they should not be eating bread and wheat products because they've kind of answered their own question. Yeah. Um, however, there is other kinds of tests that you can run looking at things like IgG antibodies or IgA antibodies, which are other type of immunoglobulin antibodies our gut lining can produce if we have um, a different type of gluten intolerance. 
So often for my patients, I'll run that test to see if it's a problem. But you can also do a little bit of an elimination style plan where I guess the important thing firstly is to figure out if it's a gluten or a wheat problem. So I would recommend going gluten-free strictly for a three to four week period and then introducing some non-wheat grains um, that contain gluten, so things like rye and oats and barley and spelt to see how they feel on those products. Give that a couple of weeks and then introduce wheat and see how they feel. And that will help them to isolate if it is gluten, if it is just wheat, or if potentially it's another whole food group that they're eating that's making them feel that way. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, it sounds like they have all already started their own sort of style of elimination diet anyway. And it's exactly. Just, uh, yeah, I mean, it can it can be the intolerances, like you said, or it can also be a FODMAP reaction. Yeah, and if she's sensitive to the the wheat, then she might be reactive to the other FODMAP groups as well. True. So doing a yeah full and if she if it is a FODMAP reaction, then it probably wouldn't come up with the intolerance testing because that's a whole different sort of reaction altogether. That's like exactly. um, when you – your small intestine has these little doorways to process fructose. And so if you've got one, – one doorway does fructose on its own and one doorway does fructose alongside sucrose. And in people with fructose malabsorption, the fructose-only doorway doesn't open in response to the fructose. And it's, and it's only if they have the diet that's balanced with the sucrose properly that they can actually sort of get it absorbed. And so if it's not getting absorbed, then it passes through and then ferments, feeds the bacteria, causes bloating, diarrhea, pain, all sorts of fun symptoms like that. Mm. And so that could, that could be what she's experiencing as well, because you can have this reaction in your gut that causes your mood symptoms as well. Like you're grumpiness or your brain fog and your anxiety and your difficulty thinking clearly fatigue yes headaches um hormonal problems so i mean that can happen with celiac that can happen with food intolerances that can happen mm. with fodmap so basically anything that happens in the gut can affect your mind as well so that's kind of why she'd be getting the grumpy i'm just yes absolutely just assuming it's a female <laughs> <laughs> so definitely I guess for this person you just have to do a little bit of um, elimination style eating and play around with gluten versus food intolerances versus FODMAP um, introducing and, and not introducing other things and then see how they feel but can I just have a little disclaimer I think that everyone if they started to take proper notice of their digestive health would feel a lot better if they followed a gluten free diet or at least a low gluten diet because it is just very, very difficult for everybody's digestive system to process. We're not designed to eat anywhere near the amount of gluten that's in our standard sort of Western eating patterns. We're not supposed to live on grains with every meal as opposed to the food pyramid and the way that that's been set up and the way that we've all been told to eat for many years. And regardless of whether she has an intolerance, et cetera, et cetera, I'm sure most people would find they feel a whole lot better if they're not eating as much gluten-containing products. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. I think that it's definitely overeaten and um, it's one of those things that's so relied on as an easy source of food. And I actually, I think that wheat is important in feeding the masses. So we've got to sort of strike this balance where we're teaching general people how to eat food that's, that's easy to do and that's cheap, but not to be so grain dependent. 
Mm, exactly. Yeah. And I and I'm sure that like wheat has probably or grains generally have probably pulled like whole civilizations through hard times and made us survive to the point that we are at today because as you said it does feed the masses and it's easy to grow and we can you know we can live off things like bread etc if there was a famine however we just have so much more choice these days in what we need to eat that we just really don't need to be going as grain crazy as what as what a lot of people do and i think there's a reason why people can tolerate your more your ancient grains like your spelt and things like that that aren't so heavily processed but then they have a piece of bread or they have the pasta and the flour products and that's when they react. It's mm. probably not wheat's fault specifically, although like there's definitely stuff in wheat that's caused these problems, but it's the processing that it's occurring to it, such as yes. um, the way that they're giving it the fast rise in the bakery so that the yes. the gliadin isn't broken down effectively and so yeah. they're genetically modifying Australian wheat to have this high gluten content so mm. it's all fluffy and delicious and everything like that. So it's just like when you start mucking around with nature, that's when things start to go wrong. Yeah. Um, Yeah. All these hybrid Australian wheat grains that are being used are definitely much more problematic. I find that a lot of my patients will even go somewhere like Europe and they'll go to places like France or Italy, which are heavily like wheat and gluten-based eating and they're completely fine. They don't have any of their normal symptoms that they would have if they were to eat those bread and pasta products here. And I'm sure it's because of the level of processing that, and the fact of the genetic modification that happens with the Australian wheat. And they usually come back and they think, oh, this is so good. I'm fine with wheat now. I ate heaps while I was over there and I was no problem. I just like had this magic cure on the plane. (laughs) Yeah. And then they, they start eating it again when they get back here thinking that they're fine with it and all of their symptoms return. So yes, Australian wheat definitely seems to be a lot worse than a lot of other countries. I find US wheat causes patients problems as well though oh god i can only imagine that would be like so high in sugars and other things at the same time i heard somewhere that we actually do export quite a lot of wheat and it's because we do have the really nice fluffy gluten-free wheat but i don't know where that's true um but if you look at the american bread that's really high in sugar so that's a whole different Mm. issue altogether um, if you're buying a lot of bakery breads or a lot of like highly refined and processed breads, they actually add extra gluten in just to make the bread fluffier still. So we're getting overloaded with gluten. Mm, yeah. It's just so altered. Yeah. yeah. It's nothing like its original form. <laughs> yeah. If you really want to have the bread, but like this is this is assuming that you have been tested for celiac and actually just while I'm on that point, I actually think it is really important that people do get screened for celiac if they're suspecting Mm. gluten intolerance because if you are eating a gluten-free diet, then usually you're going to test negative for celiac. And so if you're celiac, you can't have any wheat, you can't have any gluten. And some of the the times people with celiac disease, they sort of think they can sneak some in and it causes – like they don't get any symptoms from it, but it's still causing damage. Um, but with gluten intolerance or FODMAP, you can sneak some in and you can get some symptoms or you might not get symptoms, but the amount of damage isn't going to be anywhere near as bad as celiac disease. So you've got to have this diagnosis ruled out because otherwise you might be just sort of going, oh, that's okay, I can have some now that I'm a mother-in-law's or whatever like that. And 
you know, that damage is really, really hard to undo. Yes. I've, yeah. I've lost yeah. the I've lost the number, but I think it was something like um, it can take two years to repair the mm. damage from celiac disease, like from eating gluten if you're a celiac, and wow. two two years being on a completely gluten free diet. Yeah. God, that's so scary. It's ridiculous. It's a long the time. Of, yeah. You could definitely look at making your own bread, and if you've got some like organic flour something along those lines and you make it like a sourdough then that that slow ferment is actually going to help to break down the the gliadin and the gluten a lot more effectively so it's much easier to tolerate in your your tummy Hmm. Um, and sourdough if you've if you've got a good bakery then you go for it (laughs) like it's like it's Obviously, it's kind of tricky to make. And I've tried to make it before. It was really smelly. And I didn't mind it, although Tim complained. <laughs> and I actually I killed it at one point. <laughs> oh. I'm like, I'm not doing this again. Oh, no. Yeah. It's just like it was all bubbly away. And then the next day oh. it was like flat. And then I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah, too but, hard. But, you know, there's lots of good bakeries, particularly around Sydney, that do amazing spelt and kamut and you know rye sourdoughs that are lower in gluten low no wheat etc that are also preservative free etc that i find a lot of my patients can tolerate a whole lot better than they can standard old bread we don't have as many of those amazing bakeries here in the hawkesbury um up the mountains we do there is a lot more there but definitely when we go into the when i go into the city i'm like oh this is so much better but to stock up, yeah. I get my <laughs> patients to stock up and then just keep it in their freezer so they've got a little never-ending supply so they don't get stuck and end up eating normal bread again. Yes, and because it is very easy for people to sort of want to go back to eating normal bread because the yeah. standard gluten-free bread that you get in the supermarket yeah. tastes like cardboard. And let's be honest, most of the gluten-free breads are actually unhealthier than normal bread <laughs> by the time they've added in their thickeners and gums and things to try and get the texture a little bit softer like normal bread they end up being so processed that they're they're plasticky they're better not to eat you better just not to eat bread (laughs) that's such a good point (laughs) and the same thing goes for all your other gluten-free products just because it's gluten-free doesn't mean it's healthy yeah exactly i would seriously I really do think that most gluten-free products are probably unhealthier than their their normal wheat-containing options. So you have to get really good at reading labels and ingredients panels because you seriously have no idea what's added into your food unless you've had a good look. And if the ingredients list is, you know, simple and there's not too many numbers, then go for it. But I'm sure for most people, if they started properly reading the ingredients panel for what was in their food, they'd be putting most of the stuff back on the shelf. Definitely. Because if, you, if you're just starting off on your health journey, I think which is the impression that I get from the questions that we got today is that they haven't really started seeing anyone or really venturing into research or anything along those lines, is that it's important just to know how much you can handle of these things. Like some some people can eat a loaf of bread and be completely fine, symptom-wise, mm. but mm. some people might have a small amount of a preservative or a chemical or, or a little bit of some some xanthan gum in something and their gut flares up it's just you've got to work out what's for you and so reading the labels and keeping a journal of things is really a good way to start i think we really got carried away with that question so yeah i was um, thinking we just go a little (laughs) off topic (laughs) um so 
Yeah, so you can definitely react to wheat if you're not celiac and it can cause you mood symptoms as well and there's a lot of different ways that you can react to wheat. Um, so just because you're not celiac, no, you can't eat the whole loaf of bread if it causes you symptoms. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, okay. okay. All right, next question. <laughs> Right. Help for constipation, please. I have been taking Movacol for about five years now. I go to the toilet once a day, but if I don't take Movacol, I go once a week. I don't like relying on it, but I don't know what else I can do. Okay, so there is so much that you can do for constipation without having to rely on things like Movacol, which is a stool softener, but your body will just become quite lazy if you're having to use something like that long term um, and your bowel muscles that whole peristaltic movement that we need to have to move everything through the large intestine can start to slow down so when I see a patient that has long-term constipation issues um, we work on things like improving stomach acid and enzyme production and improving their bile flow bile from your gallbladder which is made in the liver is actually a natural laxative, so it helps to clear and push everything through the large intestines more effectively. Um, I would, again, probably give this patient like a whole digestive kickstart program working from stomach to gallbladder to pancreatic enzymes to small intestines to try and get everything used to moving through the bowels at a larger speed, a quicker speed. Yep, awesome. And I think like there's lots of different things Hmm. that you can consider with constipation like like what's their fiber intake yes um maybe they're not getting enough of your insoluble fiber which is like the one that sort of moves things through that that's like irritates the gut um mm -hmm. or maybe they're just sort of eating like a really processed diet or yes. they, they might not be getting enough fluid um this could be stressed stress is a huge one yeah absolutely and um, I, just on that topic like it actually is it's kind of underestimated I guess how much just eating a few more bits of fruit and quite a lot more veggies so that you're getting your you know two to three cups of veggies at lunch two to three cups of veggies at dinner will actually have on bowel movements mm. sometimes that's all that's needed to get everything moving through again rhubarb's in season at the moment and that that's a really good one like you could stew it up some rhubarb and have that with like some um rice or, or something along those lines that's really good for your tummy and um yeah other sorts of fiber foods would be like papaya and apples yeah and... i was gonna say papaya is one of my favorites to recommend because not only is it quite nice and high fiber but it has a whole bunch of enzymes that help to stimulate digestion so if i see someone with constipation often i get them to buy like a papaya a week and cut it up put it in the fridge so every day they're having you know a serving um, and that actually makes quite a big difference. Mm. I, I think it needs lime on it. <laughs> like the, oh, it, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I like it by itself. But I think also people, when I mention to them, you know, try and have more papaya, they screw up their faces because they get a little mixed up with pawpaw. And pawpaw is disgusting. Tastes like old socks. Papaya is quite a lot sweeter, but it actually has more digestive, um, I guess, stimulation capabilities than what pawpaw does. So it's the better tasting one too. So the papaya is the, the skinnier one, isn't it? And pawpaw is the fat one? Uh, I guess they are slightly different shaped, but you can usually determine it by picking it up and smelling it. One of them smells sweet. The other one smells like 
old socks. Because <laughs> I'm probably one of those people that doesn't know the difference. And that's why I'm like, it's yeah, slime. So, <laughs> so pawpaw, pawpaw really does taste quite awful. It, um, it tastes like old socks. Most people absolutely despise it. The papaya, I think it's traditionally Asian. It grows in tropical climates like Thailand, etc. Um, so usually the Australian papaya is imported. I've seen a couple of times you can get papaya that's grown in Australia, but it's very, very seasonal as you can imagine. Yep. So, I mean, it's imported, but whatever, it's sweet. It tastes delicious. It's so much sweeter than pawpaw. Pawpaw, quite gross. Papaya, I like it. I actually think it's one of my favorite fruits. But you can tell from picking them up in the store and having a smell. One of them smells quite disgusting. One of them smells really sweet. The sweet one's the one you want to go for. And I guess they would be labelled as well, although <laughs> I guess it depends yeah, on me. Like, you can't always um, you can't always rely on that. So that's, the sniff test is a good idea. I was going to say that I love green papaya salad. Yes, delicious. That's another Thai dish. That would make a big difference too. There's a, there's a recipe on my blog for that. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to have a look. Yeah. Um, and things like... Um, oats make a massive difference. Yes. Barley makes a huge difference. So some of those grain fibers help quite a lot as well. I do find that um, sometimes even just a probiotic makes a big difference. Have you found that? Yeah, I definitely like to use a probiotic for constipation. Sometimes I use one that's like a single strain that's like a bit more specific. But then sometimes I could just use a multi, multi-spectrum one. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and I think... Uh, it's good to mention that sometimes rotating your probiotics and using different strains all the time is useful so that you're not using the one type that just almost causes its own little imbalance by giving you too much of one type of probiotic. So as long as you're sticking to like a reputable company, I like to go for the broad spectrum ones. Unless I'm treating a very specific condition like allergies or eczema, I usually go a broad spectrum one. Yeah, I think that like you can definitely have be really specific with your probiotics if you if you've got something that you want to target for. But yes. for general digestive health, you can use the broad spectrum. And like you said, it has to be good quality, has to be um, like actual strains in within that that are going to be doing something, and they yes. should be shouldn't contain any gluten. It shouldn't contain dairy. Ideally, some of them they do spray with a little bit of dairy, and it just depends on how much you can tolerate in terms of that. Sometimes, yeah, like I've got dairy-free options for people who are really, really sensitive to dairy, or yes, yeah. Otherwise, it's not a problem. Yeah, exactly. So, probably from a food perspective, some of the things that this person can do. Um, one thing that I feel like I'm harping on about all day, every day to my patients is apple cider vinegar. So having like a teaspoon of apple cider vinegar in water each morning before your breakfast, it kind of just wakes up the whole digestive tract. But it's quite specific for improving gallbladder function and bile flow, which, as I said before, is really good for stimulating the bowels. Yeah, we don't um, know if this person has a gallbladder or not. So True. They may not. They might not even have a gallbladder, which would make it a little trickier. Yeah. <laughs> um, a quick point on the apple cider vinegar, though. If you Google it, which a lot of people do, a lot of the websites talk about doing a tablespoon, two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar in water in one go, which is way too much. It's way too much for your esophagus. It's way too much for your stomach. You only need a small amount. 
So start with a teaspoon in water in the mornings and see how you go. I feel like that typically makes quite a big difference as well. Yeah. And you, the other, you, you just need the flavour of it, like the bitter mm, yeah, flavour for your that. receptors. And... Exactly. And, at, and if you were doing as other patients have done in the past, which is to mix apple cider vinegar in like their litre or two of water and sip it all day long, it's really bad for your teeth because it wears off the enamel. Mm. So the idea of having one big like shot in the morning before breakfast that's diluted in water is much safer long term. Alternatively, use a straw. Or through a straw, exactly. Um, and what do you think about doing some dandy coffee or dandelion root tea? Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's not the flavor isn't for everyone, but definitely I, takes some adjusting. <laughs> I think I usually say give it three days. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, give it a few goes before you judge. Everyone says to me, "It's disgusting. I can't drink it." And then they have a few more cups, and they realize actually it's bearable. I'm fine with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it, once it, again, I guess it's the bitterness of that difference so that that really super bitter taste stimulates digestive enzymes and acids and bioflow which helps to move everything through the bowels yeah because we use dandelion root as a as a herb in like in our tinctures and our products for digestive stuff all the time it's actually one of my favorites that's good yeah okay um so i guess we could you'd say look at your diet maybe have some more bitters like in your food and things like that you could also consider doing some abdominal massage on on yourself or um, maybe see like an osteo or a chiro in case hmm. there's anything that's happening in that area that might be sort of stopping the nerve signaling from going through. Good idea. Yeah. Um, acupuncture can be helpful. I guess you've got to start. You've got to start somewhere. I guess the other thing for constipation is getting enough exercise. Because if you're absolutely st- if you're sitting yes. there stagnant, then your gut's not going to move. And I think even just like a bit of walking every day, or just being more generally active throughout the day, like getting up and going to the printer and they put the printer further away, or go for mm. a trip to the water cooler, or that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, like, if you look at most people. These days, we often sit in the bus or sit in the car or sit in a train and then sit at our desk and then we sit in the bus or the car or the train and then we come home and sit down for dinner and then sit down to watch TV before bed. And you've been completely still all day long, but actually your bowels rely, your large intestine relies on that action of walking. So your legs moving to kind of massage things through and to get that peristaltic movement going. So if you get to the end of a day and you think, hang on a second, I haven't actually done very much activity today, even if you spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes vacuuming and sweeping, um, or you decide to go for a little walk around the block for 15 to 20 minutes, you need to get some activity in every day or honestly nothing will move through your digestive system yeah we kind of sort of tacked that on but it's actually a really important point it is a good point yeah um and then the other thing is toilet time where you sort of dedicate a bit of time in the morning just to sit on the toilet because so much of it is um, just sort of you're suppressing that urge or that sort of desire to go to the toilet because you're like, I don't have time for this. <laughs> well, that's what most of my patients sort of say. Yeah, anyway. and if you miss the urge, you have to wait for it to come back again. And how knows? who knows how long it will be until you get that next urge to go to the bathroom again. So it doesn't matter if you're at work or wherever you are. If you're someone who's prone to constipation, you get the urge to go, you really have to go. Yeah. Don't hold it in. 
Like your mind is so powerful and if you keep saying to yourself, I don't have time to go, then your body will be like, okay, I won't go then. Yeah, hold it in. Exactly. Which sort of brings us back to that whole stress issue, right? Yeah. So people that are like highly anxious, super busy, super worried, really stressed, their whole digestive system can like shut down. It just stops working. It slows so much to conserve energy for stress that you just won't get any urges to go whatsoever. So mm. sometimes like meditation and things like yoga make a massive difference too. Mm. Love yoga. Yeah. You've been doing yoga lately, haven't you? Yep. I'm not very good, but I do do yoga. <laughs> so <laughs> I've been doing yoga for a few years. I, I just try and get there twice a week, which is a good balance. I think more would be better, but it's hard to fit it into a busy week. And it, you know, it just gives you that little bit of time out to rest your brain and to move your body a little bit so that you can kind of feel refreshed for the rest of the day. Mm. You do. I'm definitely not very good though. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd, I do a bit. I haven't been doing as much recently, but um, I actually just got a new book on prenatal yoga, which I'm going to start getting back into doing that as well. And um, I'm super excited for that because I, when yes. I do it, I love it. Yeah, but just the time. Yes. And finding the right type of yoga that you like. They're very different. Yeah, they are. <laughs> okay. All right. So anything else you wanted to say about constipation before we move on to the next question? Uh, I think that covers most of it, to be honest. All righty. All right. So this, this one is a goodie. So my four-year-old daughter frequently complains of stomach pains. I'm always at the doctors with her trying to find out what it is, but they can't find anything. It can be really upsetting for her and sometimes she's doubled up and crying with the pain. We eat well, but she always has a runny nose and this stomach pain is very concerning. She started preschool last year and seems to get sick all the time. I'm worried about how she'll go at school with this stomach pain. She used to go to the toilet every three to four days and even though this is considered normal, the doctors gave her Parachoc to try and help in case this is causing the pain. Now she does go to the toilet easily, although it's very loose. Is there anything else I can do for her? Okay, so my first thoughts for this child, if I was to see this child in my clinic, the very, very first thing I would do is a food intolerance test to try and figure out what she's eating. But to be honest, it sounds very... I would suspect dairy. What do you think? Well, yeah, wheat and dairy is always the ones that I look at first. Um, yeah. So especially with the, the mucusy, yeah, yeah, yeah. So because I guess because dairy is so mucus forming, if she's got this runny nose, then uh, that's kind of what makes me think that it's highly likely to be a dairy issue. And also because typically, and this is a generalization, but typically three, four, five-year-olds, they just eat a lot of dairy. They have yogurt, they have cheese, they have glasses of milk, they have, you know, milk on their cereal and they end up having like multiple serves of dairy every day because, it. I mean, it is a good energy for them and I guess it is good protein and good fats and it sustains them but um, they often eat a lot. So I would be going through what this child eats firstly to see exactly how much dairy she's having and then depending on that, explore sort of other food links because I feel like for a four-year-old, usually you can you can get good change through diet alone without having to mm. as many um, supplements and things as what we would do in an adult. A probiotic would probably be a good start. And Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I could just imagine how heartbreaking this would be, <laughs> particularly like if she's crying with the pains. But 
maybe yeah, there might be some sort of stress thing. issue. Um, yeah, she could be sort of holding on if she doesn't like going to the toilet, which could be causing her tummy pains as well. Yeah, and and maybe just having like started preschool. I don't, I don't think that they said how long she's had this for. So I yeah. don't know whether it's sort of coincided with going to preschool or um, whether like it was happening earlier than then. But usually, I I see that these sorts of symptoms coincide with the introduction of solids. Yes. So yeah, for sure. usually if that's the case, then it's sort of like, well, there's, there's some food involvement and like they might be starting off with grains or like rice cereal or like, mm-hmm. like the, the rusk sticks or like bits of cheese and, or it could be when they switch over to having glasses of milk, that this is when it's like they change from obvious. breastfeeding or supplement. Um, yeah formula feeding to the, the glasses of milk and that's when it sort of starts to happen but yeah. it might be a gradual build up as well yeah so asking things like you know if there's any family history of lactose intolerance or dairy issues or yeah i mean this one we probably need a little bit more eating information but yeah sorry that's it our perception of eating well is a little skewed these days <laughs> because our normal healthy eating habits as a, yeah, as a society are probably a little off where they're supposed to be. Anyway, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> oh. <That's right. laughs> no, yeah, we, we really don't know. So I, I guess for anyone else who wants to submit questions, give us as much detail as you can <laughs> and yeah, it will just definitely. make it a lot easier. Yeah, um, but I mean, if this if this patient came into my clinic, f- looking for a food link would be the most important thing that we'd we'd be trying to um, to determine. So whether uh, a food like elimination plan was followed, where we took out the most common triggers, which are going to be again things like I find eggs is very common. Obviously, dairy and wheat and gluten containing foods would be the first ones to look at for children. And so perhaps doing like a two or three week of none and then introducing each of those groups back in like one week at a time to see what happens to her tummy would be the best way to, to, to get started. And I do agree. I think a probiotic could even just get everything moving again. They could even try having something like some, some diluted chamomile tea or yeah. something along those lines. I mean, I'm, yeah. a, I'm a big proponent of infant massage and I think that yes. four years old isn't too late to start for that so doing some um, massage on her would be really nice and then having an act doing the what's called the colic sequence which is where you're massaging the abdomen mm. that can be really good for sort of getting everything moving through properly and soothing the spasms okay. so that would be good so maybe just sort of I don't know where she's based but like go onto the baby massage website and then have a look if Trying there's someone around local yeah yeah that's it yeah <laughs> oh, the poor thing um yeah i know and the hard thing about a four-year-old being in so much pain is that it's so hard for them to express to you the type of pain and where it is to try to figure out what exactly is causing it but absolutely being in pain most days isn't is a sign that something's wrong no child should have to have that symptoms that often so yeah definitely needs to be explored further yeah, I guess we don't have enough information to really say, but there is mm. definitely a lot that we can do. So mm. maybe just go to go to a practitioner. Yeah, first. see a naturopath who would be able to help you out. Yeah. Um, okay. 
So Haley, what's your favorite herb for digestion? My favorite herb for digestion? Um, I would have to say that I like to use, see, I'm a big fan of not just suppressing symptoms and I know we have great herbs like, you know, fennel and things that reduce bloating and fermentation, but my fear is always that if someone stops those herbs and the less symptoms come back, we haven't really done a very good job. So I prefer foods or herbs that like stimulate digestion and get it to work and function better itself, which is why like your globe artichoke is Probably globe artichoke would be my favorite, one of the ones that I use most commonly. So it works on gallbladder and liver and it's a really bitter digestive herb so it improves stomach acid and enzyme production which just means that your whole digestive system is able to function a little bit stronger. Mm. Yeah. What's your favorite? Well, mine's probably along the same lines and I love the dandelion root which is the, the one that's in the coffee. Um, yeah, I love dandelion root because it helps with the stomach, it helps with the gallbladder function, with the liver function, and so it also just helps to get everything moving through so that it's not stagnating. But um, I also love any sort of digestive herb which has a nervine aspect to it as well, like lemon balm and chamomile. So chamomile is probably up there. Yeah. I guess chamomile has so many good anti-inflammatory and sort of healing effects as well that it's great for anyone that has a really irritated digestive system. Yeah. There's just so many, it's hard to choose. It is hard to choose. And because I guess we always use them in combination with other herbs, to pull out one, yeah. <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> All right, awesome. So thank you so much for joining us. So Hayley, um, if people want to get hold of you or find you, how can they do that? Well, probably the easiest thing would be to go onto my website, which is www.hayleystockbridge.com.au. You can obviously find me on Facebook, which is Hayley Stockbridge Naturopath, or on Instagram as well, which is Hayley underscore Stockbridge underscore Naturopath. Um, and most of my details are spread between those three things. Fantastic. All right, well, hopefully we can catch up again soon and maybe answer some yeah, more digestive thank you questions. Yeah, so much for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, it has been. Well, um, are you off to work, off to clinic now or you've got... Today is a day off. I'm very excited that I am getting a Thermomix today. Oh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so I shall spend the day practicing my cooking and my Thermomix probably the whole weekend and I look forward to uploading a whole lot of thermo, thermo mixed recipes onto my vlogs. Oh, that is so good. I know, it's so exciting. Well, have fun with that. Alright. I hope you have a lovely day as well and hopefully we'll chat again soon. Yeah, thank you. Okay. See you.